Father, as we come together this morning as your people, we pray this prayer that the Lord taught us to pray, and it, we, we see in it a kingdom-minded prayer. It is to be our first ambition that your kingdom come and that your will be done on this earth as it's being done in heaven. Lord, and we pray all these other things that we might see that happen. Father, as we look to your word, we pray that you would equip us to be about your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Mark. And we've made our way to Mark chapter 9, the very end this morning. We'll look at Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42, and make our way through chapter 10, uh, verse 16. And just by way of context, to catch you up a little, we not too long ago we're talking about the great confession that Peter made when Jesus finally, after all of bringing his disciples through all of these many things to see him doing miracles and to give them opportunity to do some along with him, as he tries to define exactly who it is that he is before them through the things he's teaching and doing, he comes to this point and he says, you know, who do people say that I am? Some say that you are a prophet, some say that you are Elijah, some say... Uh, you know, you are John the Baptist risen from the dead. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter replies for all of them. He says, you are the Christ. And as you can imagine, Jesus, when he affirms them in this statement that you are the Christ, how elated that the disciples must have been. You know, in their relation thinking, wow, he's acknowledging, he's finally affirming that he is in fact the Christ, the, the one that God has anointed to restore the kingdom of Israel. This man that we have been handpicked to support is going to be the king. We must be pretty great ourselves. <laughs> what position are we going to have in this new administration? And so we can imagine them as they're walking along the way and they're discussing among themselves who is the greatest. And Jesus, hearing this conversation, which is a very understandable conversation, by the way, given what's just transpired, he pauses and he picks up a little child, and he says, whoever is least in the kingdom of God. And that's the setting. When we come to the text we're looking at, he has just had this conversation. He is holding a child in his arms, and then we pick up with the conversation we're going to look at. Mark chapter 9, verse 42, through chapter 10, verse 16. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. 
Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? I wanted to give you the kind of catch you up in the context because as we look at these, uh, these particular passages, it looks like we're reading three independent passages and you could certainly take each one by itself and have a sermon of its own on there. So this morning we're having three sermons. No, I'm kidding. Not really. But there is a, a reason why I've put them together, and I, and I think it becomes clear when we see the, the theme that bookends at the beginning and at the end. For you'll recall, at the beginning, here is Jesus. He's teaching them, and he's holding a child in his hands, and he's saying to them, you know, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. So he's talking about your impact on these little ones. In the last passage that we read, he's talking about don't hinder the children, these little ones, from coming to me, but instead be seeking their blessings. So there is this movement from don't cause the little ones to sin to instead be seeking the blessing of these little ones. So this, this is the bookends of the sandwich that we're looking at that's going to help us understand the nature of these family matters. For as you think about the institutions that God has established, there are two that are fundamental that have existed from the beginning of time, and those are the immediate family, you know, under marriage, and the church family, or the people of God. Those are the two institutions, and if you, it, it, it's not hard to look around in our society and to see those two institutions being under attack. They simply are under attack. Now, politicians, of course, have seized on this and say, well, the reason they're under attack is because the other party is doing this or that, and they're just being opportunistic. These are not a result of the parties. These are not even a result of our government. This has been a war that's been going on since the beginning of time. This is a spiritual war that our adversary, Satan, would like nothing more than to somehow disrupt these particular institutions of the family and the church or the family and the covenant family, if we want to call the church. And there's a reason for that, because these, these two things were instituted for the purposes of building and establishing God's kingdom. 
If you recall, there's kingdom language all throughout here. And these are the institutions that God has established, the family and the church. So I want to look at these passages that Mark has put together from this perspective of how important is the family. So as we go through here, he highlights, first of all, the dangers of sin. Then he talks about the importance or significance of marriage, and then he talks about blessing the children. So the dangers of sin, the, the, the importance of marriage, and the blessing of children. That's kind of our outline that we're going to follow as we see the significance of these two institutions that God has established in these family matters. So the first thing he talks about is the dangers of sin. You can think, well, why does he talk about sin here? Why is this put here? It's a little bit, seems like a little bit out of place, but if we think about what the kingdom of God is meant to be, the ultimate kingdom of God is meant to be a place in which sin has been banished. It's a place of righteousness. It's a place of justice. It's a place of holiness and purity and light and flourishing and healing where the brokenness and the curse is cast away. That is the direction of where the kingdom, the kingdom that is coming, that's what it's going to be like. And so we can see sin is the very thing that has to be swept out of the kingdom. Sin is the very thing that has to be dealt with, has to be removed. And we can't do that if we don't understand the true danger and mess that sin is. So Jesus begins to talk about that. And he talks about it in some pretty graphic language. You know, we were talking about this last night at our TWC and, and how this, this, this picture of Jesus saying, you know, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, you know, tear it out, he's saying. And in our conversation last night, we were discussing how some of the men know people who have literally taken this passage and cut off a hand or a foot. And it's, you know, it's a pretty gruesome, terrible thing to think about. So we ask, you know, is, is, is Jesus just being hyperbolic here? What, why, is he, why is he including this term? And, and I don't think Jesus is using hyperbola language, which he does sometimes do. I do think he's being literal because he's trying to highlight the true awfulness and terror of sin that literally it would be better for you to be crippled in this life the rest of your life than to have to suffer the experience of this unquenchable fire of hell. Now, I'm not recommending, by the way, any of you cut off a hand or a foot or tear out your eye because the real answer is, do, does your eye, your hand, or your foot actually be a cause of sin? They can be a means of sin, but the cause of sin is rooted much deeper in the heart and in the mind. So cutting off your hand is just going to make you crippled. It may, not, it may prevent you from doing a particular activity, but it's not going to remove the cause of sin. That's a, that's a much deeper surgery that has to be done by the work of the Holy Spirit and the means that God has put in place to deal with it. And the means that He's put in place to deal with that, you'll notice, are the institutions of the family and the church. That's why this is here. If you recall, he's highlighting the dangers of sin. They're so bad that sin is going to result in you being thrown into an unquenchable fire. 
Now, we have to examine that just for a minute to understand that because it's God himself who we consider to be one of his prime characteristics or traits is he's a, he's a just God. I mean, the principle in the Old Testament established with regard to justice was, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You're not to overpunish and you're not to underpunish. You're to allow the, the punishment to fit the crime. That was the principle that God himself established for his people. So when you're talking about someone who's sinning, is going to be punished with an unquenchable, eternal experience in what he calls hell, that's a pretty severe penalty. And you think, what on earth could we possibly do that would warrant such a penalty? I mean, we think of sins in terms of who they hurt, typically. You know, if I've wronged you, then I have to pay restitution to you. You know, that's the idea of the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we think about sins and how there are, you know, there are always victims of our sin. Uh, and, but there are things that we can think of that are sometimes we think of as victimless sins, and perhaps we think there shouldn't really be any real punishment for those because there's no real victim. You know, for example, when Jesus says uh, about the law, he says, anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. You think, well, that's a victimless sin because he didn't actually touch the woman. He didn't actually do anything to the woman. So, you know, what, what, why would something like this warrant that? Of course, I, I would argue and say there's no such thing as a victimless sin because even the sinner is himself a victim of his own sin because he's impacting his own view of things. He's affecting the way he looks at the world. And by the way, you realize the people around you are observant of how you see the world. They notice, especially your children, your little ones. They notice how you are. And if they see you as a man staring often at the women who are in your presence, they will notice that. So whether you intend to or not, you are creating a victims of this sin of these little ones. Whether intending to or not, you are becoming a cause, actually, for a little one to sin. But that's beside the point. I want to imagine, let's assume for a minute there actually is a victimless sin, would there still be this punishment? And the answer is absolutely yes, because the, the true one that you are offending with your sin is, is God. Even David acknowledges this. You know, David was, was a great man after God's own heart, but he was also a great sinner, if you can use that term in the, in the positive sense or the negative sense. You know, David, if you recall, when he was king, he'd sent his soldiers out to war. He was supposed to be leading them. He stays home, spies a, a young woman while he's on his balcony looking around, who's a beautiful woman, who happens to be the wife of one of his personal bodyguards, one of his 30 mighty men. And he engages in adultery with her while her husband is away fighting the war to which he sent him and should be himself. And when it discovers that she is pregnant, he tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah, her husband, home and, of course, encouraging him to go to bed with her so that everyone will think it's his child. But Uriah won't do that because all of his brothers are fighting in the battle. How could he go and enjoy his wife when his, when his fellow soldiers are out fighting in the battle, which David should have been doing, by the way, all, all, also. So David sent him back to the front lines with a note to the commander to tell the commander to put Uriah in the heaviest part of the fighting and pull back so that he dies. 
and he does. So he not only commits adultery, he also commits murder. And you think, these, are, these crimes have terrible victims. And yet, when David is confronted with his sin and he goes before the Lord in a time of contrition and repentance, he says something quite interesting. He says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And he's not trying to discount the wrong he's done to the people. He's trying to elevate and highlight our understanding that the true offense, the true victim of our sin is God himself. And that shouldn't be hard to explain. I mean, we are created in the image of God. The very reason for your existence is to reflect the beauty and the majesty and the holiness and the purity of God to all of creation. That's why you were created. So if you are marring that, the one that you are offending is God. And God is an infinite, pure and holy God. The only punishment fitting when you offend an infinite and holy God is an infinite form of punishment. So that's why we see the punishment what it is, which is only meant to highlight the fact that sin really is a bad thing. We can't in our society make light of it as we tend to do. Our culture would simply make light of sin. It would write it off. It would try to excuse it or rationalize it as though it's no big deal because we don't see the victims. But Jesus is reminding you, no, it is a big deal. And this is why it's a big deal. And having established that, the kingdom is meant to be a place of purity. Now he takes us back to the beginning of that and he says, look, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now that you are reminded how terrible sin is, the reminder is not just that you shouldn't be sinned, but don't be a cause of sin for these little ones. Don't be a cause of sin for these little ones. It's hard to imagine perhaps ways that we are intentionally trying to be a cause of sin, but often we are unintentionally causing little ones to sin. And the, the simplest way we do that is by neglect, just not positively training them. Because if you are the means by which these little ones are meant to grow into an understanding of the kingdom and the presence of God and the glory of His image and the dangers of sin, then we must be intentional about our instruction of them. And that's why when we move to this next section about marriage and divorce, I think this is where this fits this idea. And, and I say this, for, uh, I want to point out a couple of things about this as we move to talking about the importance of marriage in this whole process, is to see, one, in terms of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus has moved on. This is, he's, he's moved from the region of Galilee now to the region of Judea. So this is not temporally in the life and ministry of Jesus right next to each other. But Mark, in his selectivity of the ministry and the work of Jesus, has chosen to put them together. We see them bookended with this references to children. So we think, why does, why does Mark chosen to put this here? And I think it's because of this idea of, of the connection and importance of the family unit in its preparation for this purity of the kingdom of God. If you'll notice, when Mark talks about marriage and divorce, he, of course, he kicks it off with the question of the Pharisees, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? 
Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, uh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then in private, his disciples ask him about this, and he says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I want us to be careful because we can trip up on this passage here if we're not careful. I don't think he's primarily trying to talk about what is, what is qualifies for divorce and marriage. I think he's rather trying to draw our attention to the significance of a, of a of a marriage is. Marriage is, first of all, it's instituted by God. It's something that God has brought together. Let not man separate what God himself has joined together. And I say that because if you go and read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 5, he gives an exception to this rule about divorce. He says, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness. It's the Greek word porneia. And it, while it, it is most often associated with a, a sexual form of immorality, it, ha- it can have a broader meaning, which people have put in there, commentators have often included in there, the forms of abuse. If you, if you talk to Paul or if you look at his letters to the Corinthians, he includes this idea of, of desertion in there as, as exceptions. So it's not that Jesus is giving us the full account. That's not his purpose. His purpose is not to talk about the details of when you can or cannot get divorced. He's highlighting instead the significance of the oneness of marriage. That's why Mark excludes those exceptions, I think, and focuses on what he says, simply not so from the beginning. From the beginning, the purpose was God created them male and female, where the man might leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, we could, we could flesh that out, as it were, to understand the nature of, of what kind of union this is, the idea that two become one can have lots of kinds of meaning. If you think about the, the oneness of purpose, the oneness of intent, and that would be implied in some other teachings. For example, when Paul says, do not be unequally yoked, he's specifically talking about someone in the faith, do not being unequally yoked with someone outside the faith. And of course, the picture he's using of, of two oxen who are under a yoke. And if you have two oxen that aren't equal in strength, well, you're your plow is always going to be pulling to one side. It's always going to be in, you can't plow a straight line, you're going to be end up in a ditch. So it's a, it's a principle of marriage, don't be unequally yoked, don't be on different pages with your spouse, you have to be together as one. There is that contained there. But I think there's a more basic understanding of the two become one flesh, is the two produce one flesh. They produce children. And if you look at the book of Malachi, Malachi is a prophet. It's the last book in the Old Testament. He was a prophet that lived after Israel had returned from their exile, and they're back in the land of Israel. And while they were exiled, you know, the Babylonians had carried Judah away, and before that, the Assyrians had carried the northern tribes of Israel away, and they'd resettled other conquered peoples in those lands. So when, when the people of Israel, who had been carried off to Babylon, return back now, there's other, you know, there's, there's Gentiles or there's other people 
of foreign nations who worship foreign gods living in the land, and they begin to mix with them. And they begin to intermarry with them. And Malachi, as a prophet, speaks a word of rebuke for this. And in chapter 2, verse 15, this is what he has to say. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking by bringing two people together as one? And this is his answer, godly offspring, godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. There is this idea that this kind of marriage that has this measure of commitment to one another in, in union with each other on the same page is meant to provide the, the ultimate platform, you could say, for raising up what he calls godly children, godly offspring. The implication is there is this family unit is the means, the instrument through which God is going to train up children to be inheritors of the kingdom. They are going to be prepared by this foundational union. That's, that's, the, that's the purest picture. I know we live in a broken society. We see all those things broken all the time. But this is the, this is the picture that he's presenting of why the family is so important. This is the family's role. And now we make sense of the various instructions that we find in the Old Testament about parents raising their children. You know, Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, parents, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, right after Moses reminds them of the Ten Commandments, he says, you are to impress these laws I give you today upon your hearts, and you are to teach them to your children diligently. Talk about them when you rise up, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down at night. Why? Because they are inheritors of the kingdom. Therefore, you have a grave responsibility. Now, that's a, that's a formula that we can follow, actually, as parents with children. And we get up in the morning. You know, one practical way we try to encourage that to happen is, you know, when you sit at the table for breakfast, ask the catechism chant questions. We've been talking about them. We've, we're trying to pull all the adults in there so you can learn them too. We have written forms you can get. Just ask them. It's a good time to quiz. When you lie down at night, when my kids lie down at night, they always wanted me to tell them stories. Well, you know what's in the Bible? A whole bunch of stories. <laughs> tell them the great deeds of the Lord. Tell them the struggles, the ups and the downs. And when you walk along the road, you're encountering various aspects of life. This is where you're helping to your, your children to discern what they're experiencing. Is this right? Is this wrong? How does this fit in the grand plan of of God's scheme? What am, I, what am I being bombarded with by the world? You know, what, are they, what is the world telling me that's good and in line with the, the Scriptures, and what is the world telling me that's bad and out of accord with the Scriptures in contradiction to it? This is our you know, calling as parents in the immediate family and why God has instituted it. I mean, it makes sense. Even when you go back to the very beginning, He says God created the male and female, and He tells them be fruitful and multiply. That's your primary command. Fill the earth and subdue it. You are the stewards of my creation. 
You are the means that I am meant to reflect my image to all of my creation. So we are those, that instrument, the institution as a family, immediate family that God has provided. Now I want to move on to the, the, next, the next section, talk about the blessing of children, because we're going to expand our understanding a little bit here. The blessing of children, verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. We can understand both of these actions, by the way. You know, think about the parents. Well, they've heard of this guy. He's walking around the wilderness. He's healing people by a touch. He's casting out demons. I mean, he's clearly, they may not understand who he is, but they know this as much. He's got, he's got God's favor on him. So it's understandable that a parent would, of course, want their child to be touched by this holy man. So they're bringing them in hordes to Jesus. His disciples are trying to send them away. And we can understand them too. Remember, they've just acknowledged and been affirmed in their understanding that he is the Christ. He's going back to Jerusalem. Maybe he's about to assume the throne. He doesn't have time to deal with these children. He's got more important things to do. But Jesus, instead, counters them both a little bit. He says, don't hinder the children. Let them come to me. And the reason he says is because he says, it's to these belong the kingdom of God. To these children belong the kingdom of God. Now, this passage is often taken out of context, and people use it to, to say, this is how we know there's an age of innocence in children. And I've heard this often used as a reason at a funeral. If a child dies to a family, they just automatically say, well, we know the child is in heaven because this verse says, the, children, the kingdom of God is for such as these. And I don't want to burst that bubble. I mean, I, I, I can't say I know where children are when they, when they die, but I can tell you that was not the intention of this passage to give that teaching. The intention of this passage is something we really need to understand. And that, first of all, comes by understanding what was Jesus' mission in his earthly ministry. If you recall, when we were talking about his encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, she's a Gentile woman, she's coming to Jesus, wanting her daughter to be healed, and initially Jesus won't respond to her. And the reason is he states his purpose. I have come to the lost tribes of Israel. That's my earthly ministry. Now, that's not to say he didn't intend for the gospel to go out to the whole world. He certainly does, and he gives hints of that. We've seen that as he does interrupt that plan on occasion to, to heal a Gentile here and there, but they're the occasion. The rule is he has come to Israel. That's his ministry. Remember the overarching plan of God's redemption is I will be your God and you will be my people, speaking specifically to Abraham and his descendants. And if, if we look proximally, where is Jesus when he says this? He's gone back to Judea. He's near Jerusalem. The children around him are the children of Israel which makes sense with all of what we've seen in the Old Testament. If we go back to the time of Abraham, when God called Abraham out and says, through you, I'm going to bring blessing to the world. Through you, I'm going to make into a great nation, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this promise is for you and for your children and for your children's children for a thousand generations off. And just to prove to you that this is, promise is extended to you and your children, 
through your children I'm going to build this, I'm going to give you a sign. We find that in Genesis 17, the sign was circumcision. That at eight days old, every male born in the household was to be circumcised as a sign of the promise that God gave to Abraham that he is going to build him into a kingdom through whom will eventually be a blessing to all the world. But for now, the idea is that this is the kingdom that God is starting. He's doing it through the family. And now we see it's not just the immediate family. It's the extended family. It's what we would call the family that's defined under this covenant. So we would call it a covenant family. There is, in other words, you may be here as a parent and have young children, and all of what we just talked about is very applicable, but you may be here and your children are outgrown or you may not have any children, and you think, I wasn't talking to you, and I want to knock, I am talking to you because you are part of a covenant family. You have covenant kids, even if you don't have immediate children. You have covenant grandchildren, even if you don't have immediate grandchildren. You have covenant nieces and nephews, or if you're a child, you have covenant uncles and aunts and covenant parents and covenant grandparents, which includes every person in this room. It's why when we baptize a child, we ask vows of the parents and we ask vows to the congregation because there is this idea that you all, as a covenant family, are responsible for the blessing, the means of blessing these children. How do I know? Well, I know for a fact that the children Jesus was blessing were not his immediate children. They were his covenant children. And I know sometimes, I'm going to give you an immediate application. We, we have this, my wife gave me this. She said, here's a children's nursery sign-up sheet and a worship training schedule. You know, we have a need within our body for nursery workers and worship training leaders. You have opportunity today. When you say, here am I, send me, you can say, send me to the nursery, Lord, if that's where the need is. <laughs> you have opportunity to do that. But I love, I love what Jesus is doing here. You know, the disciples didn't want the children there because they thought it was beneath them. He's got more important tasks to do. And I know a lot of you, if I asked you, would you be willing to give up your life for the sake of the gospel? And you say, oh yeah, I'm ready to plunge into, you know, the persecuted places of the world, the hard places of the world. But you don't really want to go to the nursery because that's <laughs> beneath you. But it wasn't beneath Jesus. In fact, he understands this is the way I'm building my kingdom. Through the children. In our liturgy, we just kind of conclude with this look back at, well, in your bulletin. It's in your bulletin. Uh, where was it? Where did we read? Yeah, in the assurance of pardon and the confession of faith, Psalm 127. In the assurance of pardon, we read, Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And then we, we said this, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 
That's such a fascinating picture. You think about in the you know, in ancient warfare, you have one people that are behind the gates or charging the gates one way or the other. The gate is separating them. And there's a reason why one man is not put to shame when he's speaking with his enemies at the gates. And why is it? Because he has children. What are the children? They're like arrows, he says, in the hands of a warrior. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. It's like his, he has children that understand the virtues and the values and the battle that the kingdom is facing. So when he goes to the gate, he knows he's surrounded by people younger and equipped and trained to deal with this enemy. That's why he's not put to shame. The one who is put to shame is the one who failed to train his children, who aren't having his back because they don't understand the values and the importance of the kingdom. Now, I know we can train our children and they can still go astray. That happens. There's no guarantee. But we have a clear calling, understanding that this is an ordained means, institutions that God Himself has established for this purpose. So while it may not be a guarantee and we still might see our children go astray, that doesn't eliminate the responsibility from us to be engaged in the active, intentional training of our children. And how is the family and the church under attack today? Most of it's just very, very subtle, which would just kind of give us this idea that you as parents don't really need to be involved in the lives of your children. We have all kinds of experts that will do that for you. And so we turn over our kids, and we're not intentional. And let me guarantee you one thing, the enemy is intentional. So while you maybe think, I'm just neutral, neutrality is enabling the enemy to train your children to sin. Neglect is a cause of our children to sin. So, you know, I told them last night, I'm bringing both barrels today. I'm not trying to blast you or guilt you, but you know, we, we really need to understand the urgency and significance of not only the immediate family, but the, the covenant family, the church family, and our joint responsibility to be building the kingdom I know we talk a lot about the blessed strategy with our neighbors and spheres of influence, and that's important too. But it's not to the exclusion of this next generation. You know, Psalm 78, I will tell the next generation the mighty deeds of the Lord. We get to do that. And when we do it, we know we're doing it with the Lord's backing. That should encourage you and empower you. It's not just your words alone. It's God's with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for the challenges that you give us, the warnings and the challenges of what it means to be part of your kingdom. That it is such a tremendous blessing for you to open our eyes to see the glory and the majesty of your kingdom, especially that kingdom as it, as it 
stands in the future. And we also consider it a privilege that you have ordained the means by which you're going to build and establish this kingdom through our children. What a great promise. Lord, we ask for your help this morning that you would encourage us and equip us to step in where there is need, to be active and intentional, working with our own immediate children and our covenant children. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, there's still